So, Bible open, something to write on and something to write with, and you're going to be in good shape today. It is my opinion (laughs) that with the advancement of technology, uh, we lose our sense of awe. Uh, We'll take new technology and we'll say, man, that's cool, that's exciting, but seldom do we ever experience something new that just melts our brains for a prolonged period of time. Uh, case in point, got an example from just uh, a couple of weeks ago. Scientists held a press conference and they made one of the most exciting announcements in the history of science. Not an exaggeration on my part. They announced that they had taken a picture of a black hole. And it's a big deal. They described the way they did it. In order to get this picture, uh, they had to coordinate eight different telescopes around the globe in such a way that they operated as one Earth-sized telescope. And then they had to coordinate those eight telescopes using atomic clocks. They all had to be just exactly precise. And, And then they gathered the information over a period of time. And then after they had the information, they ran it through a new algorithm that had been put together by this brilliant young woman at MIT. And together those things gave us this image right here. Yeah, that's the black hole. Now, when you saw this picture, it was on the headlines. It was all over the place week before last. And when you saw it, you may have reacted kind of like me. I think a lot of us did. We're like, wow, that's really cool. But couldn't they use a camera with better resolution? I mean, is this really the best they could do? Why didn't they focus it better? It is, you know, NASA and scientists and space nerds and all of that, surely someone would have known to get a better resolution picture. Was it really worth a press conference? I don't know. Oh, wait, what's this? A new Candy Crush notification. Beep, boop, beep, boop, beep, boop, beep, boop. And then we just go back to our mundane dribble. Uh, So scientists made an Earth-sized telescope. That sounds like something out of a James Bond movie. An Earth-sized telescope. They took a picture of an object. 55 million light years away, and we yawn at it. I think that's the way a lot of us roll into Easter Sunday also. What is this day? Well, it's holiday, it's tradition. Mama wants us here, so we're here at church, and it's bunnies and eggs and a meal, and you know that's, that's kind of it. We lose the story, and not just the story itself, but we lose in it our response to the story. And the story for this day is, it's really incredible that the eternal, amazing, all-loving, all-powerful God of creation came to us in the person of Jesus. He loved us so much, he died on the cross in our place for our sins. Three days later, he rose from the dead, and by believing in him, we can have our sins forgiven and have eternal life. That is out of this world amazing. What does it say about our hearts if we yawn at the resurrection? If we are indifferent to the power of the story of this day and so easily distracted by the mundane dribble of life. How would your life be changed if you had an encounter and believed in the resurrected Jesus Christ? In our study of Mark 16, verses 1 through 8 today, we're going to learn from some women 
who were some of Jesus' most loyal followers. And these women, they have a response, a reaction to the news that Jesus has been risen from the dead. That informs our response today also. These women were witnesses of the death of Jesus. They were witnesses of his burial. And now on this Easter Sunday morning, this first Easter Sunday morning, we get to follow them on their encounter with this empty tomb. The story breaks up really neatly into three different parts. There's three distinct scenes in the story. The first scene would be the women on their way to the tomb. Second scene is their encounter with an angel at the empty tomb. The third scene is when they leave the tomb and they go to share the news of what they've seen and heard. And using those three scenes, what I want to show you today are three reasons why the resurrection of Jesus is astonishing, amazing, unbelievable good news for you. Not just holiday dribble, it is astonishing good news for you. So I want you to follow along with me in your Bible as I read Mark chapter 16, starting in verse 1. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome bought spices so that they might go to anoint Jesus' body. Very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb and they asked each other, Who will roll the stone away from the entrance of the tomb? But when they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe, sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he said. You're looking for Jesus the Nazarene who was crucified? He has risen. He's not here. See the place where they laid him. But go tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. Now, if you're looking at your Bible still, you might see there's more verses after verse 8. For our purposes this morning, we end the Gospel of Mark at verse 8. Why is that? When you come back next Sunday, I'll explain why we stopped at verse 8. And I look forward to filling you in on those things. But for the purposes of our study, if you just give this to me, verse 8 is going to be the end of the Gospel of Mark for us. From what we've read, I want to show you three reasons why the resurrection of Jesus is astonishing good news for you. If you're taking notes, I hope you are. The first reason it's good news is this. Jesus' resurrection means new life for me. It means new life for me. That My three main points this morning are all in the first person so that you can personalize these truths. The resurrection of Jesus is good news because it means new life for me. And in our first scene, the scene where the, our, our ladies are on their way to the tomb, uh, we get a sense of what this really means. In our study of the Gospel of Mark, we found Mark to be a masterful storyteller. He gives us such great details, and really in such a small amount of space, he puts us right there in the action. And so he does that for us, gives us some important details here as he uh, lays out this story. Uh, first, he gives us the day of the week. The Sabbath is over. Jesus was killed on a Friday. Uh, Sabbath is Saturday. Nothing happens on that day. And he says it was after Sabbath at sunrise that the women get out and they go buy the spices and they head to the tomb. So that puts us on Sunday morning. And he tells us the names of three of the women. I'm not sure that's all 
that was in the group. I think there were more, but he gives us these three names, and he's given us their names earlier in chapter 15 also. Mary Magdalene. Magdalene's not her last name. It's likely a reference to her hometown. Uh, Second is Mary, the mother of James. And you might think, well, Jesus had a brother named James. Maybe this is Jesus' mother. And that's highly unlikely. Uh, If it was Mary, the mother of Jesus, Mark wouldn't have been so fuzzy about that. He would have made it abundantly clear. Uh, But this is Mary, mother of another follower of Jesus named James. And the other woman named is a woman named Salome. Now, in the Gospel of Matthew, we're told that Salome is married to a man named Zebedee. And together, they have at least two sons. They have two sons named James and John who are followers of Jesus. They're part of the original 12. And Salome is a woman that you can admire and pity all at the same time. Because do you remember the nickname given to her two sons, James and John? The Sons of Thunder. Right, that's a long ways from sugar and spice and everything nice. They they earn that name somehow. So Salome, a follower of Jesus, along with Mary, mother of James, Mary Magdalene as well. And what are they doing on this Sunday morning? Well, they've gone and bought spices in the market, and they're going to put those spices on the decaying body of Jesus. There, There's not religious significance to their action. It's really pragmatic. The the stench of decay was pretty significant, and for the people that you loved, you would go and you would care for them in this way. First century uh, burial practices looked just like this. This is very true to the culture, that the deceased would be laid in a tomb where they could decay for a period of time, and then when there's nothing but bones left, those bones would be collected into an ossuary or a bone box, and then they would be left to rest after that. So the women have bought these spices. They're on their way to the tomb. And then Mark gives us a little snapshot of their conversation also. What's their big concern on their way there? Do you remember at the end of verse 3, they asked the question, who will roll the stone away from the entrance of the tomb? All right, so here's my question for you, the reader. You've read the whole story. What do you know that these women do not know? you know Jesus has already risen. You know that there's no decaying body in the tomb. There's no need for the spices they bought. I hope they kept the receipt so they can take it back later to Spice Mart. There's no need to be concerned about the heavy stone. You and I know that these women are about to get the shock of their lives, but they're not there yet. They're not there physically, yes, but they're also not there mentally. They're not going expecting to find an empty tomb. They're not hoping to find an empty tomb. They're going to care for a dead body. And what's weird about that is that Jesus has told his followers explicitly what's going to happen. They have information Jesus has given them, that he would die, and three days later he would rise again. In our study of the Gospel of Mark, Jesus on three different occasions predicts his death and resurrection. And it's explicit. He's not fuzzy about it. He doesn't give them some vague prophecy. The gray goose will rise at midnight. And then we've got to sort that junk out and find meaning in it. Listen to what he says in Mark chapter 10. Listen to how explicit Jesus is as to what's going to happen. Jesus told his disciples, We are going up to Jerusalem, and I will be betrayed to the chief priests and teachers of the law. 
They will condemn me to death and will hand me over to the Gentiles who will mock me and spit on me, flog me and kill me. Three days later, I will rise. Nothing fuzzy about that. Jesus is explicit. He is specific as to what he's going to suffer and endure. And he's clear about his resurrection. Every time he makes this prediction, he puts in there his coming resurrection. So Jesus has explicitly told his followers what's going to happen. They've heard it. They didn't believe it. And on this Sunday morning, we find these women living as if Jesus has not risen from the dead. They are living in an unnecessary death. And I wonder if this Sunday morning finds you living as if Jesus has not risen from the dead. I wonder if you are living an unnecessary death. How would you even know? There's any number of things we could point to in our lives that would tell us we're living as if Jesus wasn't risen from the dead. It could be that you're suffering through the ramifications of choices that you've made, sinful choices. Uh, you might be someone with an uncontrolled temper. You make excuses, got other people to blame, but that's, a, that's an unnecessary death to live in. Maybe you are toxic in your marriage. Could be you, uh, as a single adult, you feed every appetite. Or you, you might be someone who... Um, someone who's losing a battle with addiction. What you drink, what you consume, you, you do so to medicate yourself for whatever reason. It's an unnecessary death. It's not just seen, though, in the chaos of the sinful choices we make. You might have a really fantastic annual income. You might have some really sweet cars. You might have a home in an exclusive or desirable neighborhood. And all your tiny success has done is numbed your soul to your need for a Savior. You think, I've got everything the world says is great. Why do I need Jesus? It's an unnecessary death to think that these adornments mean life. When they don't, you just, you're living in a really nice sarcophagus. Christians, likewise, often live as if Jesus is not risen from the dead. Now, we would say, when we're checking off our doctrinal boxes, did, did Jesus rise from the dead? Yep, check it. I'm all in on that. He's risen. He's risen indeed. I, I yeah, I believe that. But we believe it. In an intellectual way, we don't believe it in an experiential way. And so we face crises or circumstances and we go into those situations as if Jesus is still dead. And there's no resurrection hope or power or life or future for us as his followers. Christians do it all the time. We live in this unnecessary death. So if that's the case then in what way does the resurrection of Jesus mean new life? How do I access that new life that Jesus has for me through his resurrection? Let's, uh, let's work through a scenario together. I want to ask you a couple of questions. Just answer to yourself. Question number one is this. Do you think that people who commit moral crimes deserve punishment? 
do you think people who commit moral crimes deserve punishment? I do. Yeah. Second question. Have you ever committed a moral crime? I have. And you have. So you know what I would call that? I would call that bad news. Really bad news. And I want you to imagine this scenario with me. We're, it's a courtroom scene. You and I, uh, we are the accused, the rightly accused. We are the guilty. God is the judge. He's on the bench. And he's about to lower his gavel, announcing our final verdict, which is guilty, and the punishment, which would be death. But before he does, he asks us this question. Would either of you be interested in a pardon? Yeah. A hundred times, yeah, I would love a pardon. And so what God does is he lays down the gavel, he stands up, he takes off the robe, and he comes down and he stands in our place. And our verdict becomes his verdict. Our punishment is his punishment. He doesn't just wipe the slate clean. He absorbs all the death that belongs to us in our guilt. That's what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. That's what Good Friday is all about. And that's why I would call that story good news. That though we are sinners, Christ died for us. And the reality is this. Everyone dies. But there's something different about the death of Jesus. Three days later, he rose from the dead, proving true everything he said to us. That's where we find new life in the one who died and conquered death and rose again. The question to you today on this Easter Sunday is, will you accept that gift of new life? Will you step away from this unnecessary death and live in the beauty and power and glory and love of Jesus Christ? He died in your place and lives evermore, and new life goes to all those who trust in him. That's good news. Good news of the resurrection this morning, new life is available for me. Here's a second reason the resurrection of Jesus is astonishing good news. Jesus' resurrection gives me a word to believe. It gives me a word to believe. You'll notice that I capitalized the W in the word word because the word I'm talking about is not just a few little things. It's quite specifically this written word, this revelation from God. Jesus' resurrection gives me a word to believe. This is a big deal. So as our story progresses, our women arrive at the tomb, worried about the stone, but then they find the stone is rolled away from the entrance, and then they naturally enter the tomb and look around, and they see what Mark describes as a young man dressed in a white robe. What they see is a heavenly messenger, an angel. And Mark tells us the women respond with alarm. How would you respond if you were with the women that day and you saw this heavenly messenger in the tomb? I know how you would respond. I know how we would all respond. We would respond the same way every person who has a heavenly visitor responds. It's with alarm and fear and terror. Look, no one stands in front of the unfiltered glory of God and does a fist pump. right? Not one of them is saying, I knew it. I told you. Salome, you doubted me, but I told you the whole time. No, they didn't do that. They are terrified, and rightfully so. In the presence of God, in the presence of his messenger, you're suddenly aware of your sinfulness and God's holiness. 
That's a terrifying place to be. So I love the angel's response. Mark says, the women were alarmed. What does the angel say to them? Don't be alarmed. (laughs) Very direct, very literal. I love that. And why should they not be alarmed? Well, the, the angel interprets the empty tomb. The empty tomb can mean a lot of different things. The angel explains what the empty tomb means. Jesus isn't here, not because his body was stolen, not because you got the wrong tomb, and not because he was never really dead. He was alive the whole time, and then somehow he MacGyvered his way, or he he shawshanked his way out of this tomb. That's not why the tomb's empty. The tomb's empty because he was crucified, but he's risen again. That's the interpretation of the scene. And so then the angel gives the women some instructions. You know, take a look and see. And they see it's empty for sure. And then he tells them this. He says, go tell the disciples that he'll meet them in Galilee just as he told you. They're at the end of verse 7. Just as he told you. That's a really important phrase. Do you ladies remember, you followers of Jesus, do you remember what he said previously? He said... He was going to rise from the dead. And he said he would meet you all in Galilee after this. Did you know that we have a transcript of Jesus' words to his disciples when he gave them this instruction before the crucifixion? It's in Mark chapter 14, verse 68 specifically. It was on the Thursday before this Sunday morning. And on that Thursday night, Jesus had what we call the Last Supper with his disciples And as they're leaving that room and walking to the Garden of Gethsemane, where Jesus is going to pray and then be arrested and then the events of the cross unfold, as they're walking there, Jesus tells his disciples, you will all abandon me, but after I have risen, I will meet you in Galilee. It's happened just as he told you. He told his followers he'd rise from the dead, and then he rose to life. What do you think that did to the willingness of the women to follow Jesus' instructions delivered by the angel. He told you this. He did this. Now go tell the brothers and get yourselves on up to Galilee. Don't you think they were motivated to listen and obey and believe what they were told because what Jesus said had come to pass? So the question to us is, if Jesus was right about the resurrection... What else is he right about? The resurrection of Jesus validates every word, every command, every promise that comes out of Jesus' mouth. And so, Christian, you don't have to look at your future with any uncertainty. You don't have to be so concerned about whether or not these things really happen or this word is trustworthy. He said he would rise from the dead. He rose from the dead. You can believe every word Jesus has said. The most transformational practice in the life of any Christian. Do you know what it is? The most transformational practice, hands down, is the regular, disciplined, devouring of the Word of God. When you take in the Word of God, this trustworthy and true Word, then you have a song to sing with your gathered brothers and sisters. Then you have words 
to put to prayer. Then you have encouragement and hope when your days are difficult. Then you have a story to tell when we take the gospel to all nations. It's this word that's true and trustworthy, just as he told us, that feeds our souls and brings the church together. And so, Christian, you ought to take confidence in every word from Christ and every word about Christ. When Jesus says in Matthew 11, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest, believe that. When he says in Matthew 6, Don't worry about tomorrow. Some of you should write that in permanent marker on the windshield of your car. Do not worry about tomorrow. Believe the trustworthy word of Jesus. When he says in John 14, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Believe that word. When he says in John 10, I'm the good shepherd. I know my sheep and they know me. Believe that word. When he says in Revelation 22, 20, yes, I am coming soon. Believe that. Believe what he's said because this word is trustworthy. I'm not sure we live in so unique a time in human history, but we can say this with confidence. There is a shortage of truth tellers. I don't care what your political persuasion is, that statement holds true. There is a shortage of truth tellers in our culture, but this word is true. And this one is trustworthy. And this is worthy of our lives. And it guides and directs us in all things. If I have new life in Christ, then this trustworthy word guides me in my steps forward. That's astounding good news. Christ is right about the resurrection. And he's right about everything else. So why is the resurrection good news? It's new life for me. It's a trustworthy word. Third and final reason this is astonishing good news for us, Jesus' resurrection gives me hope in hardship. gives me hope in hardship. So verse 8, the end of the gospel, it says, Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. So what does that mean, they said nothing to anyone? Does that mean they didn't talk to the disciples? It just means they had a laser-like focus on doing what the angel told them to do. They went to the disciples, they went to Peter, and they delivered the message to them. They didn't stop for some dunks on the way. They didn't ask anyone how their day was doing. Hey, you need some spices, here you go. They just went and did what they had been told to do. But they did so trembling and bewildered. Here's a question for you. If you're the writer of this gospel, if it's called the gospel of your name, how would you end it? Would you end it the way Mark did? Doesn't it feel a little raw, a little unfinished? It doesn't. It, it ought to end with a nice neat bow and they all live happily ever after and then we just tiptoe our way uh, onto the next book of the Bible. But that's not it. It's, it's abrupt. It's not so clean. Mark doesn't give us a single resurrection appearance of Jesus. He does not give us an encounter with Mary Magdalene in the garden. He does not give us a conversation with disciples in resurrected Jesus on the road to Emmaus. He doesn't give us a restoration of Peter. There's no doubting Thomas touching the wounds. No great commission to make disciples of all nations. All we have are trembling and bewildered women going on their way to tell what they've seen and heard. Why would Mark end his gospel this way? I think he does it because in the example of these women, 
we find a reflection of our real life experience. They have an empty tomb and they have some unanswered questions. They've got an empty tomb and they've got a bit of fear about what's coming next. They don't know what's happening in the immediate days ahead, but they know this. We've got an empty tomb. Their faith is anchored in Jesus Christ. That faith is anchored. Still they tremble and they are bewildered and they can't think of anything else. They just go and do what they've been told to do. I think here we have a reflection of real life for so many followers of Jesus. Being a follower of Jesus doesn't mean we have every question answered. It doesn't mean we're inoculated from difficulties and trials and hardships and persecutions. Far from it. Jesus tells his followers clearly, the world hated me, they're going to hate you. So how do we live in a time that feels so chaotic, so uncertain? How do we as followers of Jesus make it through? That's a question the first century audience asked. Mark's original audience dealt with the same thing. Here uh, they are Christians under persecution in Rome, and they believe in Jesus who died and rose again, and yet they've got to be asking these questions. If, if Jesus is God in the flesh and died and rose again, why does the church not experience more victory? Why is in, uh, persecution intensifying? Why are people leaving the faith? And even this day, Christians still wrestle with those questions. God, you're good, you're loving, and yet these difficult things happen. I don't know if you had a chance to look at headlines before you came in this morning. Sri Lanka, bombs went off at churches and other places where Christians were gathered this morning. 150 people uh, was the, the last count I saw dead as a result of these suicide bombers. Easter Sunday, Christians gather in the name of the resurrected Lord. And... Uh, And then they meet him face to face. How foolish of bombers to think that on the day that assures their defeat that they're going to put a crack, a crumble, a sorrow in the heart of God's people. The resurrection of Jesus Christ defines every difficulty, every sorrow, every bomb. Every heartache, every one. I don't have all the questions answered between this day and that final day. There's a lot of things I don't know about, but there's something the resurrection tells us for sure. It doesn't give us a chance of success. It gives us rock-solid success. It gives us certain victory in Jesus Christ who's conquered death. So we don't walk into this uncertainty or these trials or this diagnosis or this broken heart with any bit of uncertainty as to how it all goes. Christ wins. His church reigns with him forever. And so that gives a different flavor to the Christian funeral. And it takes the bite out of the diagnosis. And it doesn't mean every tear's gone now, but there will be a day when there's no more tears and no more sickness and no more terror, all of it gone, because Christ reigns supreme The resurrection of Jesus Christ is astonishing good news. It rewrites the narrative of every hardship you face, every single one of them. The resurrection informs our grief. It informs our endurance. It informs our perseverance. It gets us through all the way. Why? Because our eyes are set, anchored 
on Jesus Christ, who died and rose again. Every trial is defined by Christ's victory over death. So why is the resurrection of Jesus such astonishing good news? Because in him we find new life. And he gives us this true word to follow and to guide our lives forward. And in every trial, every hardship we face, every difficulty that comes our way, we have a rock-solid hope and unwavering victory in Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Now, I'll be honest with you. When I saw the picture of that black hole, like first I was so excited about it. And I saw the picture and I was like, eh, fuzzy donut, what is this? But I don't approach Easter that way. The story that defines this day is not just one to be relived year after year. In fact, our faith family gathers every Sunday in recognition of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Every Sunday is Resurrection Sunday for us. And what's more, we find in the resurrection of Jesus Christ power and hope and encouragement to press forward. So if you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, you're not a believer today, you've seen the empty tomb, and with that comes an invitation to believe. You don't need to live in that old death anymore. Whether that old death is marked by chaos and bad choices, or it's marked by worldly success, it's death. And you're meant for more than that. You are loved by God. And he gave his son for you. And he invites you today to receive the gift of eternal life by putting your faith in him. Say goodbye to that old death and say yes to new life in Christ. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, then the resurrection has to be for us um, power for every day, not just a seasonal recognition, but that it would inform our approach, our view of this life. And so when we see the empty tomb and our hope is in The Christ who is risen, it puts steel in our legs and it puts courage in our bellies to press forward with our good God, our loving Savior, no matter what comes. Some of you walked in here this morning limping, dressed really nice in your Easter garb, limping nonetheless. And you've got to know this. The resurrection of Christ is power for you. It is perseverance. It is encouragement. Christian, do not lose heart today on the day we recognize Christ alive and living evermore. This day pumps hope into every person who believes, everyone who looks to Jesus Christ, and it's a strength that will not waver because he is risen, he's risen indeed. Would you pray with me, please? Father God, thank you for your love to us seen at the cross your love for us secured at the empty tomb. Thank you for so great a salvation as this. Lord, we confess that uh, we get lost in the trappings of the holiday and the tradition. Oh God, thank you for showing us the empty tomb anew this morning. Lord God, we've been praying that uh, this morning you would awaken faith and some of our friends that don't know you as their Savior. Lord God, my prayer is that on hearing your word and seeing the empty tomb, that, that they've been drawn to put their trust and faith in you. 
And I pray for my brothers and sisters in the faith who are facing difficulties of many kinds. That their hope would be renewed. That their strength would be refilled. That joy could define their lives as they walk in the new life you've won for us. We praise you for Easter. We can't wait to get together again next Sunday, again to celebrate the power of the resurrection. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.